the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to, uh, what's the word, not tweak? I'm trying to think, what is it, What is the proper, appropriate term here, Terrell? You, you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly that's, uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, uh, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight, and the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar, a congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired? There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life well my next guest tonight i think would suggest the answer is absolutely so he is a gardener of sorts a missionary uh, author and um, professor at uh, Beeson divinity school in birmingham alabama he spent uh, years in bangkok thailand and uh, works as a, a church an advisor in many respects, helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's 
great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are, in fact, uh, facing a very uncertain future. It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a, you know, a church a consultant or a fixer, but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as a full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an, in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another, is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That, that's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or <laughs> the very least the stick to itiveness uh, of those called to lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe, but um, it really is an indication of sort of the the, the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor, and these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership, and usually until that uh, is changed. It usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in in, in all fairness, uh, Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will, 
But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister such-and-such, so God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastor's left. We've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land, and so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people, and they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they, they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, a, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it, but as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he, if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't leave the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and, and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been um, checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last years or so, and I'm seeing one thing that's common in because they are declining, and I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if, if you see this. Uh, one of the churches that I, I attend regularly has about 1,200 people going there, and on one Sunday the pastor asked by a raise of hands of how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord. 
less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, church as if they are, you know, out of duty. They're getting jobs. They're 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 uh, uh, sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in, and and they're not learning to evangelize. And so this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years, uh, I've I haven't been invited to one person's house yet. Uh, or out to lunch, um, they had the glad handing thing and, and the you know shaking the hands, get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But but they're not teaching what Paul said about uh, uh, the gift of hospitality. Hmm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, he dies, you know, whatever reason. The church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be the, a family, as well as be a family to their their neighbors and their coworkers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not. They've not. They're not being taught hospitality. So, what what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow, some really good observations. What about that, Doctor Devine? I want to. Out a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos, and my uh, youngest son is a is a he's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it, and it's a remarkable thing. And so they're they're most strong in the ways that that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this, the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and and the church is is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger uh, because people are not going to use their time to be involved in, in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. And I, but I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is, can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key, because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or, or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of, of a lack of real proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of, out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they, they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone. Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they, they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago. And uh, they're, they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these, in these areas. And I'm, so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see, uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. You, are you getting a sense that 
the emphasis on and I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at. <laughs> I, there's been such an emphasis on so-called uh, church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes, and I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven uh, and, and various things that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of uh, sort of figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, as a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. That churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the, the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts and teaching us how to do church right and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back, 534 here on this 28th day of January. And, you know, when we lead into the holiday season, we'll typically spend some time here on the program talking about holiday depression, as if by the time the holidays are over with, it all disappears. We know, in fact, of course, that is not the case. And for people that are dealing with chronic depression, um, it can be to the point of being quite debilitating. There may be somebody, a friend, a family member, maybe a co-worker that deals with it on an ongoing basis, and you might not even be aware of it. But there are some certain telltale signs, and there are important steps that you can take in order to address it. 
Part of it, of course, is just the stress in the world in which we live. I was reading an article the other day. The average American receives 65 alerts on their cell phone every day. They are checking their cell phone on average 10 minutes an hour. That's 80 times a day, spending an average of 5.4 hours per day on the cell phone. (laughs) So we've just switched our attention from the television to the cell phone. But all of these intrusions, and oftentimes the stress of the news that they bring, bad news, negativity, all of this, just tends to sort of double down on the kind of challenges that people face as they're dealing with depression of one sort or another. Is there a way to address depression on more than just a temporary basis? In fact, can you experience healing of depression for life? Well, that's the argument made by my next guest. He is Ph.D., best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, a place of hope, Dr. Greg Jans. And Dr. Jans, always a delight and an education to have you join us. Well, good. I, it's such an important topic, and everybody knows, if it's not yourself, we know somebody, probably a loved one, who's struggling, and we're wondering what to do and what really is depression. Let's talk about that for a moment, because as I alluded to, there are a lot of day-to-day life stresses, and certainly the addition of modern technology has sort of highlighted the way in which the craziness of the world can intrude on our lives. You, You now have to really literally go and intentionally go and seek out a place where you can get a moment to think to yourself without all of the electronic intrusions. And I guess when you add that with relational stresses and other stresses that might be associated with work or financial problems, on and on the list goes. And suddenly, before you know it, just the weight of getting through day-to-day life for some people becomes too much to bear. You know, it does. And you mentioned just the, the fact that we get, what, an average, you said, 65 notifications a day. We do. We are distracted, and we have part what I call partial attention. And it creates sometimes just this hypersensitivity um, and we kind of get irritable. Uh, so if you're already on the kind of leaning towards depression and or anxiety, a lot of this technology interference, um, I heard an interesting term yesterday, impeachment depression. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, so um, w- there's a heaviness, and for some it's a heaviness that doesn't go away. Let's talk a bit about the sense of of how we literally or clinically diagnose depression, because there can certainly be in mild forms, and I don't know whether that means we're having a blue day, we're just kind of feeling down in the dumps. That's what we used to say back in the old days. And then there's clinically diagnosed depression that can literally be debilitating to the point where some people literally can't get out of bed and and function normally. So give us sort of a sense on that continuum where this sort of depression is that you talk about in the book, Healing Depression for Life, and and what that profile looks like. Absolutely. You know, Craig, we did this new book, Healing Depression for Life, because this is my 36 years uh, of, of treating depression, and this is something that uh, you know, we do on a daily basis here at A Place of Hope, and I do believe there's hope. So let me say that. Um, and my premise is, it's, we're all a thousand-piece puzzle. We all have different pieces of the puzzle. And we really have got, when it's depression, we've got to pray for wisdom and look at this and go, 
okay, what's my potential missing, missing pieces of the puzzle? Is it, is it my body chemistry? Is it something that's going on uh, medically in my body? Is it past hurt or trauma? Uh, is it spiritual issues? Is there issues around forgiveness? Uh, am I uh, in a abusive relationship? You know, what are the things, kind of the cofactors, that could be contributing to this depression that doesn't go away? And we've got to be willing to, and that's why we do this as a team, a little different here, we've got to be willing to look at all those different pieces to the puzzle. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, here recently we had a gentleman who, I think it was about 20 years of suffering from depression, uh, came to see us, he was on five or six different medications, and he says, nothing has worked. Um, and I said, well, okay, and our team uh, went out to find what are the missing pieces to his puzzle. In all of the years of seeking help, uh, actually nobody had ever asked, well, what do you put in your mouth? In other words, what do you, what do you eat? What do you drink? Um, you know, we needed to understand, well, what's, how is he fueling his body or, or not fueling? And uh, it was interesting. Uh, of course, we're a facility where people come and stay, so we could watch him closely. And one of the things that came up is uh, probably for many, many years, uh, his overload of, of coffee, um, he had worked himself up to an average, and this is remarkable, but an average of 20 to 24 cups of coffee a day. Wow. Now, that that sounds like almost unbelievable. A little on edge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Craig, that's a lot of coffee. I'm in Seattle, and, you know, home of Starbucks. Everybody drinks coffee here. <laughs> so, um, but here's the thing. He never connected the dots, what he was putting in his mouth. And you, you wonder, how can you even function drinking 20-plus cups of coffee a day? And uh, that's just what he had slowly worked himself up to. Well, was he hypoglycemic? Did he have major nutrient deficiencies and some other issues? Absolutely. So, Sometimes we don't understand, and maybe that's an extreme example, but a true one. We don't understand what it is that is creating our depression. We just haven't connected all the dots yet. Once we begin to try and connect the dots, and clearly it's going to be different for for everybody, uh, in, in the broader picture, is there more to this than just sort of the, well, you'll get over it? Mentality, And I pose that question because there are sometimes people within our sphere, uh, our atmosphere, that don't understand what clinical depression is, think that it's singularly just an attitude of the mind if we just refocus our thinking, and, and, and certainly focus and things of that sort, very important. But there are degrees to which there are physiological things going on that may be reactions by the body to certain stresses that we are under that can be very contributory to this that takes us beyond just the simple idea of, well, you know, just think good thoughts and everything will be well. You know, and it, it is kind of what you're just describing, the positive psychology. If you just do this and think this way, you're going to be okay. And it's kind of, um, and anybody who's really struggled with, you, you use the term clinical depression, you've had a significant depression in your life Believe me, you you would try anything because uh, you don't want to stay stuck, and uh, that's what we find. Most people come into us; they've 
they've tried you know everything they know to try and uh sometimes people don't know what to say maybe you're living with somebody who's depressed and it's like what do i say to them I, i'm so you find yourself frustrated because you don't know how to help and of course the person is depressed if they could have just shook it off they would have so that's important for us to understand that a person who's depressed i really believe wants life to be different if you've just joined the conversation dr gregory jance with us today he is the author of a number of best-selling books including his most recent healing depression for life the personalized approach that offers new hope for lasting relief let's take a bit of a time out here if we can a little pause at this juncture when we come back we're going to work through why some of the more common treatments for depression don't seem to be all that successful and what it is that can help change the way you respond to treatment by changing your own mental viewpoint. That and more as our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Gregory Jantz. He, again, founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, A Place of Hope, the new book, Healing Depression for Life. We take this time out back with more as Lifeline continues. Get you update here. 544 on the clock on this 28th day of January. Let's see what's going on out there at the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back. And we continue on our conversation. Best-selling author, Dr. Gregory Jantz, the new book, Healing Depression for Life. We talked about some of the connection in the previous segment, Dr. Jantz, between uh, technology today, uh, that sense of long-term stress, and and how many of those events can all sort of conspire against us. Uh, give us the sense, in, in terms of being able to sort of parse this out, when we talk about the short-term intention span, all the digital intrusion, et cetera, et cetera, um, how contributory is that? along with our our state of mental well-being, our, our outlook on life, and long-term stress and depression. How is all that linked together? Yes, the technology really is uh, interesting. We know that um, the longer, if you're depressed and the more time you spend online, your depression symptoms actually increase. You'll tend to have even worse sleep or disruptive sleep. Uh, more time online produces actually more anxiety. We tend to eat eat more because we're staring there at the digital world. And we do a lot of comparisons online. And we become more critical of ourselves. So when you think about, wow, um, depression and online uh, doesn't really go together well, uh, sometimes we will even turn to social media as a way to maybe try to connect and have relationship and uh, what we do know is uh, folks report and there's some pretty interesting uh, studies that have actually been done with depression and social media that uh, people do end up uh, feeling worse which means they have more depression symptoms so that's not a good way to solve it uh, we would probably be better off if we'd get out uh, and start moving or exercising or uh, you know one of the things that happens is we tend to not drink enough water. We were talking about the gentleman drinking all the coffee, but when you're depressed, we tend to uh, discard good, healthy behavior. So depressed people t- 
tend, as a general rule, to be dehydrated. Amazing. So, so we want to get that water back in, everybody, and get them moving for one thing. And and certainly, I think there's there's a, a strong connection with uh, diet and depression. Whether it's some people who eat their way through depression or who arrive at depression and completely lose their appetite or just allow all of the the good habits and things that we know are the right way to eat, the right way to care for ourselves, all that tends to go out the window. And does do you find that from a clinical standpoint, all of this tends to kind of conspire to exacerbate the circumstances and as a result, dive a, uh, drive a person either deeper into depression or make it more challenging for them to pull out of it? Yes. Uh, well, one of the things we know is typically a depressed person, uh, they turn towards, and I'm making a general statement, but more towards sugar and sweets. They like sweet and smooth foods. Now, what does that sound like? Ice cream, maybe. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've, we work here at a place of hope with people who, you know, they, they go home, sit on the sofa, uh, either escape through the digital world or television, and... Uh, they sit there and, and eat. And then, uh, you know, we, we do that for a reason. We want to, what I call, mood elevate. We want to feel different. We want our mood to change. And so eating the sweet foods and high sugar, uh, temporarily we feel something that feels better, but then we end up with great regret. So uh, as uh, folks who are depressed, they really will describe, I don't have the energy to care. There's the the apathy, and that's so important to, to understand that uh, they really don't. I had somebody in my uh, office uh, who said, Dr. Jantz, it takes energy just to breathe. Mm. So it's not just a factor of mental attitude alone. It is also some of these things that are contributory, uh, as you say, diet, lack of exercise, things of this sort. And then along with that, there can be, I would imagine, Dr. Jansen, you talk about this in the book, certain emotions that can be triggers, uh, emotions that might be affiliated with having gone through an experience. Maybe you've gone through a divorce, and on the backside of that, there is uh, maybe un- unresolved um, sense of loss there. Maybe there's anger gear there. Maybe if you felt like you were partially responsible or totally responsible, a tremendous sense of guilt. How can some of these emotions, if they're never addressed fully, how can they be contributory toward this sort of uh, severe depression? Yeah. And, you know, we've got to deal with our emotions, anger, fear, hurt, um, you know, worry, guilt, shame, uh, those all can add up, of course, Craig, to be very toxic emotions, and we don't even realize it. If there's one single uh, emotional factor that we see so many times repeat itself, it's that under the heading of forgiveness. Generally, a person's been traumatized and injured, and maybe it's from long ago, and that fosters uh, an embitterment, bitterness, resentment, and they're probably pretty easy to take up offenses um, with people, and they keep making themselves uh, sick, if you will, because they don't realize I have all this resentment, and I'm hypersensitive, and I take easy, easy offense 
uh, to people and things that were never intended to hurt me, I take easy offense to. And so one of the things that uh, we've got to look at is, well, what role does forgiveness or lack of forgiveness, maybe even self-forgiveness, um, have uh, in a person's life? And I'm going to add, and receiving God's forgiveness. Indeed. And, and you know, all of that can be a one-two punch against somebody if you're dealing with unresolved anger, guilt, um, if there is a lack of forgiveness. And, you know, oftentimes we think, well, so-and-so's done us wrong, and we sort of direct our energy and anger toward them, um, failing to recognize that we're not punishing them. We're really only in the long run punishing ourselves. Let's bring this full circle, doctors. We've talked about many of the things that can be contributory from mental attitude to um, your emotions to uh, your your eating habits, all of this sort of conspiring against us. In the book, you walk people through questionnaire that will help them perhaps take their own personal inventory to get a sense of where they may be at on the depression continuum. And then most importantly, um, what sort of steps they need to take to begin to experience the possibility of discovering healing of their depression for life. Walk us through that, if you would. Yeah, um, there's a series of, uh, of questions, and it's like a depression survey, and uh, we put it in the book, Healing Depression for Life, and we kind of look in terms, there's yellow symptoms, and those are kind of minor things, uh, but if yellow symptoms... Uh, maybe one could be disruptive sleep cycle, uh, having trouble, you know, falling asleep, waking up during the night with anxiousness, uh, stop, you know, um, eating breakfast or taking care of yourself. Uh, maybe you start using alcohol or misuse prescription drugs as a way to cope. These are kind of some coping, uh, not healthy, but they're coping mechanisms. And then if we just stay stuck in that and we keep doing those things, it really moves us over to what I call the red symptoms. And uh, ultimately, a red symptom is I feel hopeless, I feel helpless, I feel despair, and then we start saying things like, well, it'd be better if I wasn't even alive, and, and, and maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't be alive, and, and then you start to have these suicidal thoughts. And, um, you know, it's it's a scary place because you've got one foot in reality and one foot out of reality. And so, you know, one of my life's uh, missions is to, is really to intervene uh, and save lives and save futures. We know that suicide, um, as we know, has grown at, at, at incredible odds. And you think about the uh, 12 to about 17-year-olds, um, you know, some of the recent data that we're reading is that Suicide is the second leading cause of our youth. Now, that's, those are amazing thoughts, um, and hard to even understand how that could be. But on the flip side, we're seeing uh, adults um, age 50 and above uh, for men, uh, as far as suicide, is another area that's going up. So uh, there's something going on where we need to intervene. And every time we have a celebrity who... Uh, has committed suicide, uh, it creates a ripple effect. You know, and you know, in, in, in your state, we had three pastors in, uh, uh, last year who committed suicide. 
And so those kinds of things uh, really create a, maybe a lack of hope for others. I think certainly so, especially when we see people that we would uh, imagine or perceive to be all together. They've been uh, successful in their careers, successful in life, successful financially, and we think, well, gee, if they can't hold it together and they find suicide as as the the final answer, so to speak, uh, then, boy, there must be no help left for me whatsoever because I don't have near their money or have never experienced their degree of success or notoriety in life. And, and and it's sad because then people get that sense of being piled on by by life and circumstances. And as you've discussed in the book and here in our conversation uh, today, uh, it it is kind of a conspiracy in the sense that the emotions, what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind, circumstances around you, and then the impact on your health, all of this sort of conspires together against you and can put you in that position where you feel as if even if there's a solution – it's only a temporary one, and it won't be long until you're struggling with depression all over again. And as Dr. Jans points out in the book, this is really a different approach, a far more holistic approach, if you will, to addressing the issue of healing depression, looking at not just the mental, emotional, and spiritual dynamic but also some of the physiological aspects to it so that ultimately you can indeed experience healing depression for life. The new book available, by the way, by Tyndale, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online directly through Dr. Jantz's website, aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. And I'll mention right now, too, that if you are experiencing depression right now to the point where you've considered taking your own life because you feel as if there's just no answers out there, no solutions, and no way out. Um, There is confidential help available 24 hours a day, free, and just a phone call away at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. The latest book by best-selling author Dr. Gregory Jantz, Healing Depression for Life, again, newly published by Tyndale House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as Amazon.com or through Dr. Jantz's website, aplaceofhope.com. Our thanks to best-selling author Dr. Gregory Jantz, founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, A Place of Hope, for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. Six o'clock exactly from KFAX. Let's get you updated on traffic this Tuesday from the KFAX Traffic Center.